It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Red Hot Chili Writers Podcast. We're your hosts, Vasim Khan and Abir Mukherjee, two crime authors ready to expose themselves on air for your titillation, edification, and amusement. We'll be talking life, pop culture, and the pursuit of the creative arts, all seasoned with just a dash of garam masala. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Red Hot Chili Writers podcast. Now, regular listeners might be a wee bit confused at this point because it's always Vasim who does the opening of our shows uh, because he's the consummate professional. Um, and being the consummate professional, he's managed to delete his notes for this week. Uh, and rather like Ron Burgundy on Anchorman, um, unless it's in a script in front of Vasim, he doesn't know what to say. So he, he's currently speechless. He's sitting there shivering, shivering. Um, <laughs> so it falls to me to do the intro. Vas, how are you this week? The reason I'm not doing the intro is because I'm eating an apple. Because <laughs> I've been working so hard all day. Yes. Well, Literally the first working? food, the mm-hmm. first food that has passed these lips. Really? <laughs> Almost. Other than oh, the chocolate bar I had. Yes. <laughs> other than all the other food. Um, <laughs> so, Vas, um, here we are, end of January, um, pretty much life as usual. We have, you know, bright things on the horizon, but we seem to be mired in the worst of the, the pandemic. We reached, what, um, 
how many deaths? 100,000 deaths this week in the UK. Um, we're talking from COVID. Um, the statistics are pretty shocking. Um, the real figures are probably worse, people are saying, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. We have a wonderfully good uh, vaccination rate at the moment. We, we're, we're doing rather well on that front. Um, and I'm hoping that this is the beginning of the end um, or the beginning of the beginning of the end. Who knows? Um, what have you been doing this week? Well, before I say that, yes, I, I echo your, your sentiment. It is uh, sobering news, uh, 100,000 deaths. But as as we know from around the world, it's it's um, it's something that uh, we're all going to have to get used to the death toll. And, and the, well, do we? Well, I'm going to I'm going to call you on that. Now, look, let's look at this. Right. Japan is an island like we are. It's got a larger population than we have. It's an international economy. Uh, they've got less than 10 percent of our death rate. No, what I meant by sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, people, I'm eating this apple because I'm st super starving. You're um, unprofessional, <laughs> unlike me, who finished his apple before we started. Uh, no, what I meant was that these are figures that we can't change now. Uh, and no, the best that we can do, the best that we can do is, as you say, hope that the light at the end of the tunnel is not an approaching train, um, <laughs> and we're actually going to get through this vaccination program, and. I think it's going to be another year of disruption. I don't think that this oh, magic. Don't say that. Yeah, I don't think this the Euro Championships. The vaccination is not going to be a magic bullet, I'm afraid, because it's going to take a long time to roll out. It's going to take a long time to recover the economy, even after it's rolled out. And therefore, I do think that we're going to be disrupted all the way up until the end of the year. I'm hoping for once to be proved wrong. <laughs> well, we should point out that you have got a very good track record of being proved wrong. So. <laughs> That gives me hope. Um, we should say, who have we got on this week, Vas? Who's on the show? Uh, well, we're going we're both going back across the pond uh, this week. We're going to talk to uh, Ozma Zainat Khan, who is a best-selling Canadian author of adult fantasy and uh, crime fiction. She's actually moved to America, uh, where she lives in Denver, Colorado. Colorado. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that was my. Why do you want to upset our Americans, <laughs> listeners? Why? Why did you do that? I just always, I just like the name Colorado. I just, I just oh. love that name. Um, and uh, she also happens to have a PhD in human rights law, so she's uh, clearly going to be the smartest person on this podcast when we record. Has there ever been an occasion where our guest hasn't been the smartest person <laughs> in the room? Let's be honest. Yeah, we have, you we have PhDs. You don't in need life. to have a PhD to be smarter than you or me. Um, <laughs> But there we are. So tell me, tell me, what's what's been going on with you in the last two weeks? Oh, gosh, uh, it's not really been that that super exciting. I have to be honest that the biggest thing that happened was that uh, we moved one of the wardrobes in the bedroom two feet. <laughs> I think your your love life just sounds amazing. I feel sorry for your <laughs> wife. But, um, did she, when you say she moved the wardrobe, did she put you in it? <laughs> I mean, it would be great if she had moved. It was one of those DIY projects that someone who is completely bored comes up with. So literally the wardrobe is, is against the wall. Uh -huh. And she decided that it would be uh, better if we moved it literally two feet along the same wall. Uh -huh. No real rhyme or reason for it. No logic for it. But I had to get my toolbox out. <laughs> so you got your toolbox out and then what happened? 
unscrewed a couple of things and then I moved okay. it and then I unscrewed oh. it back. Uh, screwed uh, it back. Okay. okay. And, and does it look better where it is now or where did you prefer it? <laughs> well, five minutes after moving it, I hadn't, uh, you, you couldn't really tell much difference. So it was like it had always been there. And that, that sounds like a good move. That sounds positive to me. But I think this is symptomatic of a discussion you and I were having with some fr- friends uh, uh, just just a while ago, which is... I, I, I wouldn't how, call them friends. Acquaintances. <laughs> no. People that we don't hate enough to not uh, completely <laughs> yes. block yes. out of our lives. Um, but about how boring this whole, uh, this whole new lifestyle that we have where we're locked indoors and nowhere to go and uh, nothing to do. You say that, but I've, I've actually... Um... I've found a wee bit of a, a, a cure for that, or at least a bit of an antidote for the boredom. Um, I have, since the beginning of the year, um, started a health kick. Um, now, you may remember I started a health kick last year as well with my FitCube. Uh, our regular listeners might remember my FitCube, which I still have, and I'm pleased to say I'm still using, though uh, not as regularly as I was last January. Um but I thought, look, I really need to do something. It's not it's not enough to just do things ad hoc because I'm still fat. Um, so a number of things. So firstly, I bought myself a blood pressure machine to tell me how high my blood pressure was. Um, and it was really high, which made my blood pressure go even higher because I got worried about it. Um, but on the back of that, I decided, right, I need a proper exercise regime. I'm, I'm now I'm monitoring what I eat. Um, I'm doing regular exercise. There's an app. There's a new app. If you've got an Apple Watch and an Apple phone, Apple just released this app called Apple Fitness. And what it is, is it's loads of videos of trainers going through lots of different types of exercise. There's yoga, there's strength, there's weights, there's cycling. And you can do all of these um, exercise regimes with them. You can do 10 minutes or you can do 20 or 30 minutes. And I found that's really motivating me to exercise. Um, and they've got beginner's classes for people like me who are that sort of chronically unfit. Um, but even in two weeks, I'm seeing a difference. I can, um, I can sort of get up the stairs without running out of I'm, I'm going to I'm going to prove what a great friend I am. I am going to now solve your blood pressure problems. Go on then. I'm going, to think, I'm going to think out of the box because I've been doing some research and apparently there are some out of the box ways that don't involve exercise and, and diet. Oh, this, this sounds good. How, how can I lower my blood okay. pressure? Without... So here are, here are two or three things that are recommended. Right. Firstly, visit the zoo. Apparently, uh, there was a study in Japan that was conducted and uh, animals, uh, affinity and, and spending time with animals is a very good way of lowering your uh, lowering your blood pressure. Is that right? I can understand yeah. that, you know, but um, the zoos are all closed, so um, okay, maybe not that one. I, and, that, um, to be fair, the last time I went to Longleat Safari Park or that one with the monkeys, they attack you. I didn't do anything good for my blood pressure that day, so I think okay. you need sort of soft, cuddly things like tribbles out of Star Trek. If you have tribble, that would lower your blood okay. pressure. Give us it's another one. Here's another one. Volunteering. Apparently, adults who volunteer at least 200 hours a year, that's about four hours per week, are 40 percent less likely to develop high blood pressure, according to findings from Carnegie Mellon University. That's interesting. Now, now, do you think that is because they've got this sort of glow of helping or do you think it's the actual physical exercise that they, in, that they do when they're volunteering? Well, apparently, uh, volunteer uh, volunteering 
the activities that are involved give you opportunities to make healthy social connections um, right. compared to the connections you have with your wife and kids obviously uh, and you <laughs> <laughs> although to be fair you... I, did, I did volunteer to oversee your community service and that, that's, <laughs> that's why we have this podcast um, hey that was court ordered I had no choice <laughs> yes, carry on next um, one so the next one is hug your husband apparently oh, wow. oh. <laughs> Or spouse, I suppose. Spouse. Let's go with spouse. Yeah, let's go with spouse. Yeah. Okay, I'll do that. I'll suggest that to the wife. See if she's up for a bit. Uh, of so this is in the journal Biological Psychology, uh-huh. and they conducted a study. And apparently, women who frequently hug their partner tend uh-huh. to have lower blood pressure than those in less affectionate relationships. To be fair, you know what? Because like when we got this blood pressure machine, right? I was convinced it was faulty, right? Because mine was ridiculous. And then my wife tried it and hers was perfect, 120 over 80. So there probably is a lot of truth. It probably does work yeah. for women. They uh, do go on to say that we haven't verified the optimal hug frequency. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, can, I can imagine, yeah. It, it probably works for women, probably less well for men from, from what I can see. Or less well for fat, useless men like me. Um, now, the last one I'll is like... not really going to work for you, I'm afraid, because well, it's, uh, it's about dancing. So it, it advises a, a study in the Netherlands Heart Journal found that uh, people who dance uh, more, especially musicians, have lower blood pressure. Oh, mate, you, you're right. You, you're right. It's not one for me. But that, that has actually reminded me of something. Um, this Apple Fitness app also has dance uh, classes. So I thought for a laugh the other day, I would try one. I thought I'll try a beginner's dance class. Right. And it's oh. about 20 minutes long. And I guess how long I managed to follow the steps for? Uh, 20 seconds? 15 seconds. <laughs> I overestimated. I'm, I'm not making that. 50, I, don't, I don't understand how. It's like a different species, these people who can, like, dance, you know, follow moves. And I, it's just witchcraft is what it is. Um, yeah, I wish I could dance, but I can't. Oh, I'm, nice. I'm just, I dance with my eyebrows, my wife says. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm like I, you. I mean, Maybe I'm not that as bad as you, but I, I I'm no I'm no um, Fred Astaire. Uh, it's it's it amuses me how all the different types of dancing around the world and through the ages, how all of them look so easy. So you got your I was watching a Fred Astaire movie the other day and how simple that looks. Yeah. And then I have a, a niece who was sent to Bollywood dancing school to learn Bollywood dance moves. And I tried much... that once. I tried that once about twenty years ago. I was rubbish. You, but as you say, yeah, you, you're not. You're more. You're more Fred Astaire lift than Fred Astaire. Aren't you? Um, <laughs> and, and do you remember when we were when we were uh, even younger than we are now? Uh, there was a whole craze, and around our college years when um, break dancing first came to these shores and body popping. Do you remember the body popping? I, I remember it. I can honestly say I never partook. Growing up in rural Scotland, as I well, not that rural, but in Scotland as I did, body popping was never, never what it was in say, like let's say where you grew up in London. Um, oh yeah, it was huge in our college because we were an East End college, and there were lots of people with back to front baseball caps uh, uh-huh. coming to college, and you know they would be out in the canteen doing their. So can you break that? Up. Can you body pop? You know, I, I I did a little bit. Uh, ladies, I was, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I am going to make it my mission that we put up a video 
of the same body popping um, on our Twitter feed at some point yeah, in the next I should month. correct That's you. When I, when I say I did a little bit, I meant that I was there in the environment and got carried away and humiliated myself by attempting to do oh, no, that's, that's good. I, humiliation is what i'm hoping yeah. for here as well because so I think, yeah as i discovered very quickly although it looks good when an expert does it when somebody who doesn't know what they're doing tries to do it i think no but remember that was 20 years ago you've got 20 years worth of life experience now i reckon i reckon it's going to be easy for you to be like Falling off a log for you. Um, we'll put it this way. Peter Crouch. Uh, uh, I don't know if you, did you know the footballer Peter Crouch. Yeah. He, he he did it on the football pitch and it became an instant meme. Um, yeah. Sort of robot so I, I, think, I think you could make this some sort of, sort of crime fiction meme. You could be the Peter Crouch <laughs> of crime fiction. <laughs> Can you imagine what that would mean for you? Okay, so before we go to our guest today... Um, one of the things I've been recently doing, uh, talking of animals, is is reading a lot of nature books and stuff online about animals. I mean, I, I love the natural world anyway, uh, but it's also a bit of research for. You uh, should maybe you should maybe write a book where you've got animals in them. I think you'd be good at that. <clears throat> yeah, and you can be in it as well, Doctor Do Nothing. <laughs> Doctor Do Nothing. To do nothing. Um, and so I thought I, I came across some very intriguing animal facts and I thought it would be nice to give you a bit of a quiz. For a oh, no, I love um, your quizzes. I live for your quizzes. You know, that's one of the best things about the lockdown is your quizzes. Give me, give me, give me one. Okay. All right. So uh, let's have a look. So these are all I'm going to ask you. I'm going to lay out something for you and you have to tell me if you think it's true or false. True. So. Let's start with something simple. Male koalas have two penises. That's false. No, apparently it is true. Shut so, up. Yeah, male koalas have what? two penises. Yeah. How? Uh, what? I don't. How? How? Why wouldn't I know that? <laughs> I would not reach the age of forty-seven and not know that if that were true. Hold on. I don't normally cheat at these things, but I'm going to Google this. Hold on. Google it. Okay. I'm... Alexa, how many penises do male koalas have? Oh, I don't know that Alexa doesn't know that one. I'm going to have to actually type it in. Alexa's feeling embarrassed. That's the problem. <laughs> how many penises do koalas have? Let's see what comes up. Wombats all through. What? It's no. It's it's one penis. It's two pronged. Yeah, whatever. Same thing. No, it's not. That's like saying if I've got two prongs on a fork, it's not two forks, is it? <laughs> well, the place that I found this information, they they've called it two penises. Right, come on, next one, next one. Okay, okay. What okay. is so that's... mammal? Uh, what is the only mammal that can fly? Oh, that's going to be um, that flying bat. Is that a, yeah, that's a mammal, isn't it? That flying bat. Um, yeah, well done. Well, no, you're right. You're right. I'll give you that one. Uh, bat, a bat is the only mammal that can fly. Although, weirdly, uh, bats, the leg bones of bats are so thin that they can't actually walk on the ground. They walk on their wings. Is that right? Mm. Oh, so they walk on their hat. Their... Oh, okay, that's interesting. What about squirrels? Isn't there like a flying squirrel? It doesn't really fly. It glides from one tree to the next. 
Yeah, sort of, oh, okay, yeah, the bat doesn't really glide, yeah. does it? No, yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a misnomer, the flying flying yeah. squirrel. It's it's it's, yeah. it's buffed up its reputation for for something it doesn't really deserve. And and what are the only humans who can fly? Well, there's a couple actually. It's a flying Scotsman. It's a flying Dutchman. Um, <laughs> I think that's about it, really. Okay, next question. So I'm doing what about, what, one the, out of two so far. What right? about the other famous one, the the, the flying Bengali? You, you heard of him? I have no idea what you're talking about. You just <laughs> ruined the perfect joke. But you carry on. You carry on with your next one. Right. Cows can sleep standing up. Yes, that's true because you can. You go cow tipping, don't you? Um, so yeah, where, where people go into fields and push them over. So yeah, cows okay. do sleep standing. I'm up. sorry, that's the first time I've ever heard of cow tipping. I mean, who does that? <laughs> People who live in the countryside, I don't know, but it, it happens. It's um, horrible. I mean, how would you like it if I came round your house while you were fast I asleep and tipped you out of bed? I haven't. You've done that, actually, at like <laughs> seven in the morning. <laughs> Got me out of bed, made, you, made me drive you to to Yeovil. So, yeah. I... <laughs> Do you remember once so when we, we were... Remember when we went down to um, speak at the Isle of Wight festival? Oh, and we where, we had up, to share a, where we had to share a room. Yeah, they'd made a mess fun. of our they'd made a mess of our bookings, and uh, and because two brown they they couldn't compute that two brown people, yeah, <laughs> two brown writers, they thought, we were, the person, thought yeah. we were the same person. So they gave us the the one room. So that was uh, that was creepy. That we were like Morecambe and Wise that night, weren't we? That was kind of um, yeah, we were like the brown Morecambe and Wise. Um, yeah, okay. I think I'm doing quite to finish well. Off that cow one, to finish off that cow one, apparently, and I have no idea how, how they know this or how they research this, but apparently they only dream when they're lying down. Yeah, that's true. That is um, true. In, <laughs> in, what, in what key do house flies hum? Oh, gosh. The key of G. You're close. It's, absolutely, it's actually F. Oh man, flies! Did you say house flies or fruit flies? House flies. Oh, that's why. You see, I was thinking fruit flies. Um, I did not know that. That's interesting. Any reason why they hum in the key of F? No, just must be the nose, uh, the noise they make. Uh, uh, how fast do hum, uh, honeybees flap their wings in in times per second? How many times per second do they flap? Oh, their wings? per second. Four. That is minus 10 points. It's actually 200 times a second. What? Shut up. How is that even possible? Yeah, it's like the hummingbird. The hummingbird uh, flaps its wings incredibly fast. Yeah, but so humming, that's a hummingbird, right? This is a bee, right? <laughs> I mean, fair dues. I'm, I'm as fond of bees as the next man, but really that fast? They're not exactly like aerodynamic or anything. I'm impressed. <laughs> what colour is a polar bear? Oh, this is this has got to be a trick question, right? Yeah. Um, because I want to say white, but it's obviously not white. Are you talking about the fur, or are you talking about the bear itself? The bear itself. The bear, bear. <laughs> um, I'm going to say pink. No, polar bears actually have black skin. Is it? Yeah, underneath that fur. Uh -huh. Well, there you are. There you go. There's the ebony. <laughs> And ivory lived together. How long? And this, this is this is a shocker. How long can pigs orgasm? 
Oh, long time. Pigs can orgasm for a very long time. Um, half an hour. That is actually true. It's in the Guinness Book of Records, and it, it's actually slightly creeps me out that you know this fact. I only found out a couple I know, of days ago. I, I, I know a lot of things, and I know that comes as a shock to you, but... Yeah. Um, you, know, you I weren't do. out doing doing field research or anything in this I, space, were you? I, it wasn't a field. Like our, like our former <laughs> Prime Minister. <laughs> yes, I was a member of the Bullingdon Club, yes. <laughs> <laughs> For scientific reasons only. Uh, yeah. so um, how, did I do, how did I do on the quiz? Uh, I'll give you one last one and then okay. we'll tot up. Um, how much times stronger is a dog's sense of smell than a human's? Oh, um, 25 times. Not even close. That's another minus 10 points. It is 100,000 times stronger than a human sense of smell. That must be terrible if you're a dog. Can you imagine if you could smell (laughs) that well? (laughs) But they only have one-sixth of our uh, taste buds, apparently. Well, if you ever tasted dog food, you'll understand why. (laughs) so right. yeah i can understand um, yeah so when it comes to food um I've, I've got to say you haven't done very well there because there was some colossally colossally bad answers that you gave there way way out so i'm not sure if i can give you that one hang on, hang on. you can't there are no degrees of wrongitude here right it's it's, it's binary there, there are very much degrees of of wrongness i mean the last time you looked in a mirror you should have been aware of that fact but <laughs> Right, shall we crack on? Shall we crack on and talk to Ozma? You didn't tell me what. No, I want to know what we got, what I got first. And you got minus 23. Minus 23, yes. That's a new <laughs> record. I'm proud of that. Right, shall we go and talk to somebody um, more intelligent than ourselves? Today, Vas and I are chatting to Asma Zehnat Khan, best selling author of uh, fantasy and crime fiction. Asma is Canadian, but now lives in Denver, Colorado. Asma, welcome to the Red Hot Chili Writers podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, um, it's, it's wonderful to have you on. Um, have you ever come to the UK before, Asma? Because you're based in Denver and you're from Canada. Um, and it's great, to ha- it's great to have such an international guest on. Do you know the UK at all? I do, actually. I was born in Leicester, England, and I lived in the UK for the first five years of my life, and I, I visit frequently because I have cousins there too. Ah, well, we can tell from your Leicester accent there that. Um, <laughs> can you? One of us, uh, and how do you feel? Because Leicester are doing quite well at the football at the moment; they're third in the, the league, so you must be quite uh, happy. Now you've got to be careful. You can't call it football because you'll confuse. Oh, sorry, soccer. <laughs> now I, I know that uh, British soccer is called football. Yes, I, I did not know that about Leicester, but of course I have to be happy about it. Yes, from Leicester, huh? Why you should not know football? Anyway, let, let's let's get down to it. Let's start at the beginning. Asma, tell us tell us a wee bit about yourself and where you grew up. Uh, so I had, as I mentioned, I was born in England. I had kind of a varied upbringing. I lived in England for five years for a short time in Pakistan, and then my family decided to immigrate to Canada. So I grew up in the Western Prairie provinces in Saskatchewan and lived there for about eight years. And then my family realized that there was really not very much community out there. So we moved um, east to Ontario 
and I spent all my teen years, my adolescence, most of my life actually in Ontario. And then about 15 years ago, we immigrated to the United States, my husband and I. Well, I could end, end this interview now and I would be happy because I think that's the first time I've heard a, a Canadian person say Saskatchewan and I now know how to pronounce it properly. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it takes you some say, doing. It takes some learning. It's a say, First Nations name, so yes. You say Canadian, but she's from Leicester, remember? So Don't I'll, forget. I'll, I'll be, you know, I, yeah, I, I have four passports. Two of them are expired, but I'm happy to still have them. Four passports? But what, what are you, an international drug smuggler? <laughs> or at least I'm not an arms dealer. Right? Well, no, no, what you are, though, is an international human rights lawyer. You have a PhD in that um, and a specialization in military intervention and war crimes in the Balkans. That's fascinating. Tell us a bit about that. How did you get involved with that? And it's amazing. Thank you. It was um, a little bit of a rocky journey on that path because I'm South Asian. I'm sure you know my parents wanted me to study medicine. And I didn't want to. Um, Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I wanted to be a journalist initially, of course. And my parents just thought that was a, an unsafe profession for a girl as well as not likely to be lucrative. So later in life, of course, I moved into the extremely lucrative profession of crime, right, crime fiction. <laughs> yes. um, but along the way, when I was in pre-med, I realized this wasn't for me. And I managed to persuade them that I, I would make a good lawyer. And they thought, OK, that sounds pretty good. But they didn't realize that, of course, my ultimate enduring passion was for human rights and for justice. So I ended up working, uh, studying human rights law, working in immigration for quite a while teaching human rights law. And I had just entered law school when the war in the former Yugoslavia broke out, when the war in Bosnia broke out. So I was studying the very same concepts that I was seeing on the ground in real life at a time when I was young and passionate, idealistic, and uh, I was able to see how those principles of international human rights law were not being applied. And that made me determined to talk about failures of international law and uh, military intervention for human protection purposes. So then somehow I got into that I became fully committed to that and I spent the next decade of my life studying it working on it. Did, did that leave you at all jaded seeing the you know theory of, of justice and then seeing the reality on the ground how, how do you how do you reconcile that and how did you you know come to terms with that? Um, I don't get jaded I get angry uh, because there's so many people doing such important work on the ground all the time taking much bigger risks not not actually working on theory, but trying to change people's lives for the better, trying to save, save lives. So I just get angry when I see injustice and I channel that into all of my work, whether it's teaching or writing or working on cases um, or talking about human rights issues. I try to take that anger and do something constructive with it. And yeah, no, it, it made me very angry to see that we have this 
corpus of international law that speaks to the protection of vulnerable human beings, particularly in times of conflict. And these laws are a century old, more than a century old. Um, and then not to see any of that applied. So I thought it's important for me to speak about that first in my PhD work and then later in my first novel. Well, that's really interesting. You say you're channeling your anger into your books. Um, you know, I had a similar thing, and I know Vasim did. You know, my, my first novel was was really uh, it's therapy for me more than anything else. It's it's angst, and is that what got you? Is that does that still motivate your writing? Yeah, I, I mean, I probably shouldn't say this on a podcast, but I'm full of Muslim rage all the time. At the, in the injustices I see around me, the rampant, unchecked Islamophobia, the desire for a better world that I feel is so easily within our grasp if people would simply open their minds and open their hearts a little bit. So yeah, it does keep me going. But I would like to say at this stage in life too, there's other things. There's, there's joy, there's the recognition of people's decency. And when I first wrote The Unquiet Dead, I was thinking about this quite a bit, that I've seen so much human suffering but at those points of human suffering, I always see that intersection of human decency, people giving up everything to get involved in a fight that matters. And so that kind of helps you get more, get balanced in your perspective and set, reset yourself and look at issues in a more, in a less take no prisoners kind of way. So tell us about The Unquiet Dead. Tell us a wee bit more about that book. So that was my um, debut crime fiction novel, and it features a pair of Canadian detectives. Isa Khatak and his younger female partner, Rachel Getty. And I wrote Isa um, out of my own experience because he's a Canadian Muslim who's very devout and he's from a South Asian background. He's a Pathan like myself or, or the term Pashtun your listeners might be more familiar with. And he's this man who comes to this position where he heads up a, a minority policing unit called the community policing section. And he, he knows that he's being used in this position to sort of put a a brown face on the difficult issues that underlie law enforcement in a country with many minority communities, but he's also using that position to further his own aims, which is to get justice for minority communities. So in The Unquiet Dead, the first case he and Rachel are called to work together is the, a death of a man named Christopher Drayton, who's supposedly fallen off the Scarborough Bluffs, a, a big tall cliff. And it doesn't seem like a, a minority sense of investigation based on the man's name and the kind of case they're usually called to. But it turns out that Christopher Drayton is the alias for a fugitive war criminal from Bosnia. And so this gave me a chance to, um, to write about the Bosnian genocide, to memorialize it, and to interpret it from the perspective of a detective who shares the faith, same faith as the victims of that genocide. And so he brings a completely different lens to the case and has a much different and deeper understanding of the issues involved for the refugee community that this crime takes place in. So I, I read this book uh, a while ago and I, and I really loved it. And one of the things that it brought home to me was how patchy my own knowledge of the Bosnian war was. I mean, we obviously got had coverage in this country, uh, but it, um, like most war coverage, if you're not personally or intimately involved, it tends to pass you by to a certain extent. And, and that same is true of Rwanda, same is true of even Af Afghanistan, the Iraq wars, etc. I know a bit about them, but I don't really know much about on the ground detail, whereas your book really does go into that in a way that makes it quite accessible uh, and a bit horrifying as well, I have to be honest, uh, in terms of the, the atrocities, but also I suppose this is my real question to you. I mean, you research this, uh, this stuff as well as writing a, a crime fiction novel about it. The reality of Western participation, or, or should I possibly say lack of participation or efforts on the ground to, to save these, these people, 
Um, can you tell us a little bit about that for people who might not be familiar with the war? Uh, I'll try my best. <laughs> Given the freedom to talk, I could probably talk about this for days. But um, when the country of Yugoslavia dissolved, uh, its various republics made a stake for independence. And the Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina did so in 1992. And the minute that it did, the, uh, the rump Yugoslavia essentially declared war on the population therein. And for a long time, it had been promoting this uh, ultra-nationalist, xenophobic rhetoric on state, on state television, demonizing Bosnian Muslims as the foreign other, the Turk, and much more derogatory terms than that. So stirring up uh, the hatred of an entire nation towards another group of people who until that time in Bosnia, which was a very mixed nation, had lived very peace peaceably with their um, Croat and Serb neighbors. And fully a quarter of Bosnian families run along intermixed lines. They're intermarried. So these distinctions did not seem important to the Bosnian people. And, and they were living a kind of enlightenment of a, a mixture of cultures and faiths. Uh, and then came the war, the aggression by Republika Srpska, Serbia, and uh, and then we saw the West get involved. So actually there was a great deal of participation by the West. There were two United Nations missions deployed into Bosnia. One was a humanitarian aid mission. And like we're seeing in Syria today, that was often hijacked by the aggressor with its supplies taken rather than delivered to the people in need. And the other was a peacekeeping mission called UNCRAFOR or United Nations Protection Forces. But they were deployed into a situation where there was fundamentally no peace to keep with a very unclear mandate, lightly armed, and ultimately they became um, hostages for the aggressor in the war so that Western countries would not act because particularly Britain and France, because those were the two nations who primarily had troops on the ground uh, and would not act to intervene against the aggressor because of this, because they feared for the lives of their peacekeepers. So on the American side, over time, there was a lot of rhetoric about bombing, about military intervention, about taking out the tanks, the Serb tanks that circled the city of Sarajevo um, and, and per perpetrated that three-year siege. But because the Americans didn't have troops on the ground, they didn't have as much say, and the British and the French, who did have troops on the ground, absolutely refused to countenance a more robust form of intervention. And all of this inaction and confusion about the mandate and the disarming of the Bosnian population ultimately led to a situation where Western powers on the ground, uh, guided by the Security Council, neither intervened to defend the Bosnians from genocide, but also imposed an arms embargo so that the Bosnians couldn't fight back. So they neither defended them nor let them defend themselves. And that ultimately led to that calamity in July of 1995 with the Srebrenica massacre, where there were Dutch peacekeepers in safe area, the United Nations designated safe area, Srebrenica, which was a town on the eastern border of Bosnia. And the, Bos uh, the Bosnian Serb army rolled into town and within a matter of eight days had executed 8,000 Muslim men and boys. But what a lot of people have forgotten is that there was a battalion of 450 peacekeepers who had called for military strikes to prevent exactly this outcome. And there was a lot of confusion at the top. Well, they say confusion, but there were NATO planes in the air, but they never received command orders. And by the time those orders came through, because of that breakdown in the chain of communication, six requests for airstrikes, planes were out of fuel and returned before they fired a shot. So the Srebrenica enclave fell without a single shot fired in its defense. The Western participation, um, I would say, I often argue, is the, West, the Western powers involved are deeply implicated in the Bosnian genocide. It's absolutely shameful what happened, and and you're right. It's it's more than just the Dutch 
not doing anything at Srebrenica. I think um, there are many governments, including our own, um, which acted rather shamefully at the time, um, probably more shamefully than we will ever know. Well, you actually um, have a, a, a very interesting British historian by the name of Brendan Sims, who'd written a book exactly just on the role of the British in the Bosnian genocide, and it's called Unfinest Hour. So that's actually a, a great resource for anyone. <laughs> that's up against some stiff competition. <laughs> I tell you, we have many such hours. <laughs> but let's let's move on to um, tell us a wee bit about your fantasy series, the, the Khorasan Archives. Oh, that the fantasy series is a complete change of pace for me. My crime series is pretty dark, and my fantasy series is also dark, but in a different way. So I, I often describe my crime series as me looking outward to the tension between different communities, minority communities in the West. But the Khorasan archives was a chance for me to go deep into my own history and background, both as a Muslim woman and as a Pathan, and to talk about um, to talk about the uses to which faith is put to disenfranchise and oppress women and minorities. So the series is set along a broken Silk Road some thousand years in the future. And it features a pair of women warrior scholars at the helm who live under this ruthless patriarchy, very similar to the Taliban that has suppressed all forms of knowledge, banned the written word, and enslaved and subjugated women, as well as carrying out a genocide on minority populations, including a population called the Hazara. And so these two women possess this fantastic oral magic called the claim, but they're looking for the missing written record of it, which the talisman have destroyed everywhere they've gone, because they believe if they can reclaim this sacred magic, they'll be able to use it to bring down this patriarchy, which is led by an evil villain called the One-Eyed Preacher, who was loosely based on Mullah Umar. Um, so it draws a lot from Afghan history, uh, and it also draws a lot on the touchstones of Islamic history, the big monumental moments in the unfolding of Islam, first in the Arabian Peninsula and then throughout um, the Middle East, Central Asia, and South Asia. So it allowed me to have a lot of fun with things people don't know about the Islamic civilization, just to describe our beautiful monuments, our architecture, our artistic expression, our love of language, our civilization of the book. But it was all in the hands of women. Women were the religious authorities. Women were the ones speaking back. Women were the ones saving the vulnerable and the helpless. And that was incredibly powerful and freeing. And the last book in the series, which is called The Blade Bone, which came out in October, in that book, I dedicated that book to Malala Yousafzai. Ah. And I was thinking that her cause and my cause are very similar. And tribally, I'm also a Yousafzai, so. All right. Well, just to pick up on that, I mean, for me, I found out when I was researching one of my books about the Begums of Bhopal, um, which is, you know, Bhopal was a, a princely state in India, which for about 100 years between the 18th, which, uh, basically most of the 19th century, was openly run by Muslim princesses, begums, you know, and they were, the, the state was ruled openly by these women. And, and it gives the lie to so much of what we are taught about um, Islamic culture or, or some of the interpretations that we see today. And what was fascinating for me was it, it wasn't just that example. I mean, I looked at quite a few of the princely states. And what you find is that while the, the Maharajas were, you know, flamboyant, debauched people traveling the world, you know, whatever, it was the women, it was the Maharanis, whether they were Muslim or Hindu or whatever, who were the keepers of the culture, who were the ones who pushed education and healthcare and really ran. They were, they were the centers of power. It was the, it was the Zananas. It was the, um, 
what we would call the harems that were centers of political power and not the way they've been portrayed today. And to me, that was fascinating. And I think it's such a wonderful thing to introduce women's voices back into fiction and take these historical figures and have them speak. And that was one of the things I was trying to do with the Horace Vaughan archives is to say that in so many accountings of Islamic history, the accomplishments and contributions of women have been completely erased. And in contemporary times, we have these very nihilistic and joyless creeds that again yeah. seem to relegate women to second-class citizens. But within the same tradition, there's so many examples of the opposite. So imagine if women's voices were able to speak and raise those voices up. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a, a problem which is wider than just Islam, though. I mean, you can see it in Christianity. You can what, see it in Hindu. Um, what's the latest book then? Is that is that is that the book that you've just been working on, the last one in that series, or are you doing something else? So the book that my latest book that was published that came out last October was The Blade Bone, which was the conclusion of the Horasan archives. My last crime novel came out about two years ago. It was called A Deadly Divide, and it, strangely enough, it was about white supremacy and um, uh, a mosque shooting in which a white supremacist had infiltrated the military and the police and so on. So, uh, And I had written it after the mosque shooting in Quebec, but before the Christchurch shooting. So it was timely then, but it seems to be timely again now. But I'm working actually on a new crime series set in Colorado featuring uh, a lead investigator who's a Muslim woman this time. Oh. Uh, her, her name is Inaya Rahman, and the book is called Black Waterfalls, but it won't be out for another year or so. Oh, well, we are looking forward to that one. What's your writing process? Uh, when I'm on deadline, it's really intense and rigorous. <laughs> so I, I do about six months of research first on the subject that I'm interested, or if it's something like the Horace on Archives, I would have been reading that material all my life anyway. Um, and then when I feel my research process is complete and I've figured out what the story is that I want to tell and the material that I need to rely on, I then do a very thorough outline because I'm really, really bad at matching up my clues afterwards and my suspects. So I outline pretty thoroughly to avoid those kinds of mistakes. And then I, um, I write for about six to eight hours every day. I do two hours of social media and emails in the morning and then I write. Uh, and then when I'm closer to deadline, it could be like 10 to 12 hours, depending on how desperate I am. Two hours of social media. What are you doing? Are yeah, you... <laughs> it will email too, answering things from editors and oh, press right. and writing talks and all of those kinds of things. I mean, it's probably a, a good time to ask you about your your thoughts on recent political events in America, not just the, the very recent ones at the Capitol, but the last four or five years. I mean, it's pretty obvious to guess where your feelings might lie on this, but it, <laughs> perhaps uh, you'd like to give us your perspective. Well, I find the United States such an interesting country it's full of contradictions. People are immensely friendly, much friendlier than Canadians, for example, much more open. Nobody will pass you on the street without saying hello to you. But at the same time, you don't really know where their politics lie. So we'd been living here in the States for a long time on a green card. And then as the 2016 election season began, and we began to see the kind of I mean, there were indications all along, all along ever since 9-11, but that anti-Muslim rhetoric began to get really ramped up. Um, as Trump became a, a contender in the election season. So I said to my husband that we better finalize this process because we don't know what's coming next. They could kick us out at any time. And my husband would say, oh, you're such an alarmist. I go, listen, people who talk like this, their first step is they stop processing citizenship applications. Their next step is they start denaturalizing citizens who've recently gained citizenship. And then after that, they start floating ideas about banning birthright citizenship. So we're just at the beginning of that process. Let's go through it, get our citizenship application. So at least we have some rights when if things should come to pass in a direction that we don't like. 
So we did get our citizenship, and right after he was elected, all of those things happened. He began to, Trump, President Trump put a ban on processing green cards, slowed down citizenship applications, denaturalized people, floated this idea that birthright citizenship should be banned, and the party became more and more radical. So it, I live in a Republican, a county that votes Republican in a very non-multicultural area. And, you know, there's Republican signs and crazy stickers on, on truck, pickup trucks all around here. And we're not the deep south, but some people even fly the Confederate flag. So your neighbors are smiling at you, but you don't know what they're thinking when they go to the ballot box. And it's a little bit scary. So in the beginning, I used to, in Ramadan, I used to sit on, out on my porch and wear my chadar and read the Quran during Ramadan, but I stopped doing that just because there's so much tension in the air all the time in this area. Not so much in places like Chicago and Los Angeles where I've always lived, but definitely here. And then this neighbor that I spoke with every day and played with his dog, like right when the, the re-election campaign started for Trump, he put signs on his, on his lawn for Trump and then for creep, creepy Joe signs. So again, that frightened me a little bit because if those are your politics, what else are you thinking? What are you thinking about the Hispanic community and Latinos? What are you thinking about um, the black community's experience with law enforcement? How do you or do you not support the Muslim ban? You just don't know those things about your neighbor. So it's shocking to me how undereducated and ill-informed a huge segment of the American populace is, which I think makes that segment so susceptible to conspiracy theories. And they lack, I'm sorry to say it like this, but it seems to me that a large segment of the population lacks critical thinking skills can't evaluate news sources accurately and can easily be um, swayed by these conspiracy theorists and these radical Republicans who um, have set the country down such a dark path and it's not going to be uneasy to do, undo or to, it's not gonna be easy to undo or to get the genie back in the bottle what they've unleashed in this country. And so now I have a much better understanding of mob mentality in places like Rwanda before the genocide or how the Nazi party came to power in a fascist party like the Nazis came to power in Germany. It doesn't happen in one step. It happens in these thousands of incremental steps. So it's been a scary time to be Muslim in the United States or to be any minority in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember being out there a couple of years ago uh, talking to a couple of African-American writers and they were saying for the first time in their lives, they were scared. Well, they, not for the first time, but the, the, the level of, of fear, the fear that you could just get shot in the street um, for even minding your own business was something that, you know, we, we're immigrants or our parents are immigrants to this country. It's something we don't feel. It's something we've never felt. Touch wood and we're very lucky. Um, the idea that you could be an African-American whose family's been in that country for, what, 200 years, probably built that country, and yet live in fear of, you know, the police breaking your front door open and shooting you on no grounds at all, and they got the wrong house. It's, it's pretty shocking. Um, it was shocking to me, and I, I, I can't imagine living through that. Hopefully, um, do you think we've turned a corner? Do you think there'll be a reconciliation? I do think we've turned the corner, but I think unless we have legislation catching up to tech, that we're regulating these spaces where hate speech proliferates unchecked, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, all these 4chan, 8chan, and other and Parler, of course, had to, was deplatformed. But until there's some legislative action in those speeches where we begin to, we're able to connect incitement to action, um, I think that that blowback is going to continue to exist for a long time. And, and because in this country, maybe rightly so, free speech is such a sacrosanct value, there's nothing in balance to it where they're able to say free speech, but up until this point. So 
as long as that continues to, to exist, I think that force is going to get only stronger. And of course, we have a gun problem in this country. So not only do you have people who don't understand the issues, who don't have critical thinking skills, who are susceptible to misinformation and conspiracy theories, but these people are armed and they're heavily armed. So that just adds this to this cocktail of things to worry about, fear, weaponry, attacks, yeah. and so on. But at least it's no longer getting the top-down sanction from the president of the nation. And, and I think the media has turned a little bit of a corner in that they're much more critical of the Republican Party, and that helps too. But there's this huge divide in the United States, uh, and I'm not really sure how we bridge that gap. And I don't want to be united with people who are fascists and Nazis and who are okay with kids being kept in cages at the border. I'm not seeking unity with those people. I'm seeking accountability from them. Brilliant. Um, it is quite odd to me that uh, the two things that Americans talk about as their inalienable rights, can't even pronounce it, are freedom of speech on one side and gun ownership on the, on the other side. We've got to have these two things because of course they're equivalent. No, they're not equivalent. Um, we've got a couple of minutes left. Um, the question I like to ask people, just to give a, a, a bit of a window into their into their time when they were younger, that got them onto the path of reading and and uh, books. Uh, favorite children's book? I think mine is probably from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, which is about a young girl who's angry at her parents, so she runs away to the Met Museum and she hides out there and makes this fantastic discovery about one of the exhibits, and it's got such a sense of wonder and of magic and mystery that it's always stayed with me. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Uh, asthma is asthma. Do you pronounce it asthma or asthma? Asthma. 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 Okay. Just to be That's clear. Right. Ask, ask at the end of the interview, Vas. Good idea. Uh, <laughs> well, we did ask. Asthma, I'm going to ask you a question. When you're next coming to Leicester? Um, I'm hoping as soon as the pandemic is over, we're going to make a trip up to London for sure. Well, we need to get we need to get you um, on one of the two of the book festivals here. Let's try and, and organize that if and when they're up and running again. Oh, that would be lovely. Thank you so much. Well, that was rather wonderful, wasn't it? I love the fact one of the best things about doing this podcast is just getting to interview such wonderful and such interesting people, people that have done you know, so much. Asma spent time in Bosnia during, you know, the war. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Um, here's you and me sitting in <laughs> in London pontificating about the world when there are people who've gone out and done it all. Um, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful to have them on. I, I think, I think, no, I think, I think we've got to put an embargo on people who are much uh, smarter, better looking, and have done and achieved more than we have. We've got to have people who are much worse than us to make ourselves look good. Yeah, but that, who does that actually leave? We can't get Boris Johnson. Um, he's probably a bit busy, but um, anyone else you can think of? I don't, I can't, we are scraping the bottom of the barrel. Um, we'll, we'll give it some thought. Let's see who we can come up with. But I think the next couple of weeks, we've got some phenomenal guests lined up, haven't we? Uh, we've got uh, we've got Auntie Val on. Yes, we've got Val McDermott. I believe we also will be having Dean Kuntz quite soon, won't we? He sold well, how many? Did you say five hundred million books? Five trillion books or some zillion books. Yeah, I think it's going to be a while before we get anybody of our level, um, which is good for the listeners, not so good for us um, or our egos. Well, once again. If you've liked the show, can we ask you to please leave a review and spread the word? Um, Vas, 
other than a wonderful interview, I thought we had a wonderful quiz too. Uh, I never thought I would have a discussion on the number of penises that a koala has. Um, I'd like to say I've learned something today, but I'm not sure <laughs> I have. Um, Vas, any comment? Any last words before we, we pull the curtain uh, across another episode? Uh, no, but I, I think I, I really enjoyed the whole animal theme, and I think next time we might we might carry on our exploration of the natural world because I I do miss I do miss uh, the ability to go out and uh, go to a nice an outdoor place where you can see animals in their natural environment rather than on TV with David Attenborough chasing them around. Our exploration of the natural world. No one else but you would describe a conversation about how many penises a koala has as the exploration <laughs> of the natural world. Um, ladies and gentlemen, until the next episode, we have been your friends, the Red Hot Chili Writers. Stay safe. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.